0: In Greek mythology, there is probably no more popular character than that of Heracles, the legendary son of Zeus and future star of his own Disney cartoon. In fact, the legend of Heracles proved so popular that the Romans took his story and co opted it into their own mythology, redubbing him with the name you're probably more familiar with, Hercules. One story Disney left out of their version, probably for the best was the time when Hercules was driven mad by the vengeful goddess Hera, causing him to murder his wife Megara and his three children. The grief-stricken hero was later sent by King Eurystheus on a series of quests to atone for his sins that are known as the Twelve Labors of Hercules. In truth, these labors all seem a tad less heroic when you consider they mostly involved heading to some faraway land and stealing something from one of the gods. On his tenth labor... Hercules was sent to a part of the world which we would know today as southwestern Spain. There he was to steal the cattle from the monstrous King Geryon, the grandson of Medusa and the nephew of Pegasus. According to one version of events, after obtaining the cattle and slaying King Geryon, Hercules then ordered that the giant's head and weapons be buried on the site, and that a great city should be built to mark the location. Today, it's widely believed that the location described in the legend was the Spanish town of Coruña. And it's there you can find a very real landmark known as the Tower of Hercules. The tower is the second tallest lighthouse in all of Spain, and the single oldest Roman lighthouse still in use today. For thousands of years, sailors have used these brightly lit towers to help them navigate dangerous waters and locate safe harbors. This practice began with signal fires set along coastlines to help guide ancient mariners on their voyages. While the earliest known lighthouse towers date back as far as ancient Egypt, even today hundreds of lighthouses around the world still remain in use, although by now they are mostly used as a backup in the age of GPS location. But long before satellite navigation became a thing, Sailors across the globe relied on these coastal lights to help them avoid a trip to Davy Jones's locker. Today, the vast majority of still-functioning lighthouses are automated. But, back as far as the Tower of Hercules, lighthouses were typically staffed by one or two individuals whose job was to keep the light burning throughout the night. But a lighthouse keeper's life was a difficult one. The keeper would be isolated for weeks or even months at a time, often in harsh conditions. It's through the lens of that lonely existence that we find some of the most tragic stories in history. Practically any lighthouse you can find today has a dark past to go with it. And with many of those tragic tales, you'll often find a ghost tacked onto it as well. Take, for example, the legend of Seguin Island, a 64-acre slab of rocky land just two miles off the Gulf of Maine. The island is home to the second-oldest lighthouse in Maine having been built in 1857. One story tells of a keeper who brought his new bride to the island, but the young woman wasn't used to the isolation involved with living on Seguin Island, and she grew increasingly bored and depressed, constantly complaining about not having anything to do. So the keeper decided to buy his wife a piano to help occupy her and to keep her mind off her boredom. It was a massive chore to haul a piano up the rocky ledge, but the man's wife was overjoyed at her gift. The problem was, the woman could not play without sheet music. And the piano only came with one song, a simple Scott Joplin tune. Then winter set in, and no other deliveries could come to the island. Throughout that winter, the keeper's wife played that same song on the piano over and over and over again, day and night. That earworm was enough to drive the lighthouse keeper insane. And one day, in a fit of rage, he smashed the piano to bits with an axe. And when the man's wife got in the way and tried to stop him, he chopped her into pieces as well. Afterwards, standing there among the bloody and broken remains of his bride and the piano, the lighthouse keeper felt a rush of remorse about what he had just done. Soon after, he committed suicide. It's claimed that on foggy nights you can still hear the sound of the lighthouse keeper's wife tinkling away at her phantom piano. And that's not even the only ghost associated with the Seguin Island lighthouse. There's another legend dating back to 1904 about a former lighthouse keeper known as the Old Captain who died penniless and alone on the island. And who it's claimed can still sometimes be seen climbing the steps to the tower. Yet another ghost story tells of a little girl who died of tuberculosis and was buried on the island near the generator. According to local legend, the girl can still be seen playing, laughing, and sometimes breaking into a coughing fit in the lighthouse gardens. In Bridgeport, Connecticut, just off Long Island Sound, you can find the Penfield Reef Lighthouse, which is allegedly home to its own ghostly lighthouse keeper, still keeping people safe a century after his death. On December 22, 1916, keeper Fred Jordan rowed away from the island headed for the mainland, leaving his assistant, Rudolf Eiton, in charge while he was gone. Rudolf kept an eye on Jordan as he rowed away in the distance. The seas were rough that time of year, and the very thing he had warned Jordan about happened when he saw the boat capsize in the strong waves. Rudolf rushed out in another rowboat and tried to save his boss, but to no avail. They found Jordan's body washed ashore three months later, but just two weeks after Fred Jordan got washed away, Rudolph Eiten wrote in his logbook that he saw the man's ghost climbing the stairs right in front of him. Eiten dashed down the steps, terrified, only to find the logbook lying open on a table to the page recording his former boss's death. After that, other stories would be made about the ghostly lighthouse keeper still performing his duties. One account tells of a couple boys who in 1942 were fishing near the island when their boat capsized. But out of nowhere, a strange man appeared to rescue them and haul them to shore. He led the boys back to the lighthouse and offered them warm drinks and blankets. Later, when they described the man that had helped them to another lighthouse keeper, that keeper swore there was no such individual there. It was only when the boys were shown a picture of Fred Jordan that they were able to identify the man who saved them. Now, I could go on and on with stories like these. After all, I like a good ghost story as much as anyone. Skeptics may argue that all the lighthouse ghost stories are just fanciful yarns dreamed up to scare the tourists. But as it turns out, some of the scariest lighthouse stories from history don't have any ghosts in them at all. I'm Nate Hale, your guide to the murky waters of history, and this is The Conspirator's The Outer Hebrides are an archipelago off the northwestern coast of Scotland. And within that chain of islands, you can find a smaller string of islands known as the Flannan Islands, or, as they're sometimes also referred to, the Seven Hunters. The Flannan Islands took their name from a 7th century Irish preacher, St. Flannan. The largest island in the chain is named Yaleen Moor, which literally translates to Big Isle. Despite how difficult living in such a rocky and remote location as the Outer Hebrides must have been, there are signs of human habitation throughout the archipelago dating back 5,000 years. The Vikings invaded the islands in the 9th century, leaving as their legacy a number of islands and locations within with names derived from the Norse language. Life on any of the islands would have been a constant struggle against the elements. Yet, in the words of one of my favorite fictional mathematicians, life finds a way. Throughout the islands, you can find several examples of structures left behind by ancient man, many of which are steeped in a number of superstitions that have become inextricably intertwined with the great mystery of the Aline Moore Lighthouse. Just off the west coast of Lewis, there's a large ring of megalithic stones known as the Callanish Stones, which date back to around 2,900 to 2,500 B.C. A tomb containing human remains was also found at the site that appeared to have been added sometime after the stone circle's construction. Although the origins of the Callanish stones aren't clear, a Scottish writer named Martin Martin once wrote in 1695 of human sacrifices that took place among them. One other local legend speaks of a group of little people who lived throughout the islands. Although they are often referred to as pygmies, Martin claimed the tribe's true name to be the Los Berden. Martin went on to document all sorts of strange occurrences on the island which he chalked up to the mysterious little people secretly scurrying about. Another priest named Donald Monroe added to the legend by claiming to have found pygmy bones buried on Aline Moore. To this legend, we can find at least an element of truth, because Aline Moore does contain the ruins of an ancient chapel. And within that chapel, tiny bones were found. But sadly, those appear to only have been the bones of birds and small rodents, not little humans. Shepherds who visited Aline Moore believed it to be a magical place they dubbed the Other Country. They claimed it was populated by a wide variety of spirits, elves, fairies, and even giant birds. Fishermen who sailed near the island were said to sometimes perform special rituals to appease the spirits that wanted to dash their boats on the rocks. No one was ever foolhardy enough to spend the night on the island. Because it was believed that if you visited the island and didn't obey the rules of the island's little people, you might never return. Some legends tell of the ghost of one of the seven hunters who liked to lure men over the cliffs to their doom. Other stories persist about shape-shifting water spirits known as Kelpies who made their home throughout the islands. The waters surrounding the Flannan Isles were supposed to be home to a particularly nasty variety of storm Kelpies that liked nothing better than to dash ships against the rocks for fun. Such legends were almost certainly born from the very real fact that the sea throughout the region is notoriously treacherous. High winds, unpredictable storms, and rocky shores made for dangerous travels. Sometime in the 1850s, discussion began about building a lighthouse on Moor, But construction on the lighthouse itself wouldn't actually begin until 1895. Building such a structure was difficult because all the supplies had to be hauled up the 150-foot cliffs from ships lurching in the churning waters below. It's a little difficult to tell the true story of the Aline Moore Lighthouse Keepers, since so much of the story has been intertwined over the years with false and misleading details. So perhaps it's best to begin with the story as it's most commonly told. On December 15, 1900, an American steamer, the Arctur, was passing by Aline Moore when the captain noticed that the lighthouse wasn't functioning. The Arctur was damaged after bottoming out on a rock and had begun taking on water. So after the ship limped back to shore, the captain finally reported the light was out nearly a week and a half after noticing that the light had gone dark. But for some reason, the message was delayed in reaching the Northern Lighthouse Board, the group in charge of administrating the lighthouse. Mind you, someone probably should have noticed the lighthouse wasn't working even earlier than that. Considering they had a spotter on the mainland whose job was to monitor the light by telescope, but poor weather and thick mists shrouding the island kept the spotter from seeing that the light hadn't been turned on for weeks. Another ship known as the Fairwind also reportedly passed by the island sometime after December 15th. And so too did its crew notice that the 140,000 candle power light had gone dark. But again, for some reason, the ship's captain didn't report the problem, until long after the mystery of the lighthouse keepers was already widely known. The captain of that vessel also added another peculiar detail to the mystery. He claimed his men had spotted a group of ragged-looking men rowing a small boat towards the island, although no evidence seems to exist of just who these men might have been. It wasn't until December 26 that another ship finally visited Aline This vessel was the Hesperus, and it was captained by James Harvey who carried with him a relief lighthouse keeper by the name of Joseph Moore. The way it worked was there should have always been three lighthouse keepers on duty, one of whom would get rotated out periodically and allowed to return to the mainland. There were three lighthouse keepers assigned to the island that day, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and the occasional keeper, Donald MacArthur. Ducat was the senior lighthouse keeper in charge, While it should be noted, MacArthur had been a last-minute replacement for one of the regular keepers who had fallen ill shortly before his shift was to begin. There were two boat landings on the east and west sides of a lean moor. The Hesperus docked on the east side, which was considered the easier of the two landings. Right away, the ship's crew noticed a few things were off. For one, the flagstaff had no flag hanging off it. And for another all of the usual provision boxes had been left on the landing stage for restocking. Perhaps most ominously of all, none of the lighthouse keepers came down to the docks to greet them. Captain Harvey blew the ship's horn and shot up a flare, but this produced no response. Joseph Moore went ashore alone. He could feel the tension in his gut ratcheting up as he made his way up to the lighthouse. He climbed the hand-carved steps past the ruins of the ancient chapel and made his way to the front gates. He found the entrance gate to the compound and the door to the kitchen both closed but unlocked. A trio of black birds lifted off from the top of the lighthouse tower as he approached. Moore felt an eerie sense of foreboding as he went inside. He noticed that two of the three oilskin coats that should have been hanging in the entryway were missing. A damp chill hung in the air. All the clocks on the walls had wound down and stopped working. There on the kitchen table sat an uneaten meal of potatoes and salt mutton. One of the kitchen chairs was lying on its side as if someone had knocked it over in a hurry. Joseph Moore returned to the Hesperus and informed the captain of what he had found. He brought back with him some more members of the Hesperus crew to help search the island but no trace of the missing lighthouse keepers could be found anywhere. In the meantime, Captain Harvey sent a telegram to the northern lighthouse board that read, "'A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the occasional, have disappeared from the island. On our arrival there this afternoon, no sign of life was to be seen on the island. Fired a rocket, but, as no response was made, managed to land more, went up to the station but found no keepers there.' The clocks were stopped and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on, we could not wait to make something as to their fate. I have left more MacDonald, master, and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oman until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire, the morehead, In case you are not at home, I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes if you wish to wire me. The following day, Moore and the other men found further signs of trouble near the western landing. This was the side of the island that faced the open Atlantic, and it had been severely damaged by some tremendous force, presumably a storm. Something had caused a one-ton boulder to fall off a cliff. The rails for a steam-powered tramway were bent out of shape by the massive rock. The metal railings along the landing were also twisted and broken. An emergency buoy had been ripped from the railing as if by some unimaginable brute force, and a box of mooring ropes that should have been firmly anchored in a cleft of rock were missing. The superintendent of lighthouses, Robert Moirhead, would note all these details in his report, also noting that all this damage had occurred at 110 feet above sea level, which presents some difficulties for some theories about what happened to the men. The problem you always have with studying history is deciding which stories to believe. In the case of the missing lighthouse keepers, it appears many details which are told and retold as true are nothing more than embellishments and outright falsehoods that were added over time in order to amp up the creepiness of the tale. For example, the details involving the blackbirds taking off when Joseph Moore approached, the overturned chair, and the uneaten meal all appear to stem from a 1912 poem titled Plan an Isle written by Wilfred Wilson Gibson. And from there, those details were picked up and mentioned again in an article published in a 1929 pulp magazine, True Strange Stories. Likewise, the entire story of the ship the Fairwind passing by the island and the mysterious men in the rowboat also appear to be nothing more than a fabrication. One further detail that often gets reported are about a series of log entries by Marshall that begin on December 12th describing a storm the likes of which they had never seen. Then he mentioned in passing how quiet Ducat had become and that MacArthur had been crying. On December 13th, he stated in his log how the three men had begun praying, describing their increasing discomfort and dread. Then on December 15th, he made one last brief log entry, ending with a cryptic statement, God is over all. This all makes for a good campfire story but the problem is this too seems to be another set of false details that don't actually turn up in the historical record until the 1929 pulp article. The alleged log entries contain a number of red flags involving both chronological and other factual errors. There's also the issue that they were allegedly written by Thomas Marshall, when the job of filling out the daily logs would have naturally gone to the man's supervisor, Ducat. Despite these discrepancies, The story of the logbook would again be reported as truth in a 1965 book about the Flannan Isles incident by Ernest Fallon, who, incidentally, is also the same man often credited with coining the term the Bermuda Triangle. So what are we left to make of all this, then? We'll likely never know for certain what happened to the three lighthouse keepers. With the distinct lack of evidence, plenty of wild speculation has arisen. Some of the wildest theories include alien abduction, mystical portals opening to another dimension, and even sea monster attacks. Currently, the best theory anyone has may also be the most mundane, that the three men went outside in a storm and were somehow all washed away. But even this is rather problematic, though, considering the men were expressly forbidden from leaving the lighthouse unattended by at least one of them at any time. But there may be an explanation for this as well. Ducat's daughter later admitted in an interview that her father had been reprimanded and fined five shillings earlier that year for failing to properly secure some tackle down at the West Landing. Although she also claimed that Thomas Marshall had actually been the one at fault, and that her father had only taken the blame since he was the man's supervisor. It's possible that on the night of the incident, fearing for their jobs, Dukat and Marshall rushed out in a storm to secure the tackle on the west landing. Then, when they didn't return, MacArthur went out looking for them. Remember, there were two sets of oilskins missing from the coat rack inside the lighthouse. Although this would also mean the third man would have gone outside in a storm not wearing His which is another detail that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. If MacArthur had been in such an erratic state that he carelessly rushed out to help his comrades without proper rain gear, why did he still have the presence of mind to carefully close both doors to the facility on his way out? If we were to keep following this thread, though, then it's possible the men were swept into the ocean by either gale-force winds or a massive rogue wave. Occasionally the right weather conditions have been known to form massive waves throughout the Atlantic that have been measured somewhere as high as 90 to 100 feet. But the idea of the rogue wave still proves difficult to fully swallow considering the amount of damage found at an elevation of 110 feet above sea level. Likewise, some researchers have pointed out that typical wind currents would have likely directed gale force winds to push the men inward toward the middle of the island and not out to sea all of which means that we're still left with a mystery in which even the most plausible theory doesn't quite hold water. Although the weight of evidence still leans toward a rogue wave being the cause of the men's disappearance, plenty of experienced lighthouse keepers have weighed in saying no keeper in his right mind would have ever set foot outside in a storm bad enough to cause such massive waves. In 1971, the Aline Moore Lighthouse was automated, making it so there was no more need for a human presence on the island. They even built a helicopter landing pad near the stone chapel to ferry the occasional maintenance worker in and out. The story of the Aline Moore Lighthouse Keepers remains one of the most infamous mass disappearances in history, and likely always will. Several books, movies, and TV shows have been made about the incident, speculating about what happened to the three men. It's unlikely we'll ever know the truth of what really happened, which means the story will after forever remain a mystery, as murky and mysterious as the ocean depths. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, AMC Network's Shudder, the premium streaming video service super-serving horror fans of all degrees. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment anywhere. One thing you should know about me personally is how much I love horror movies. I've been watching horror movies all my life, dating back to a time when I was way too young to be watching them. In fact, if I ever do another podcast, it would almost certainly be about horror films. Shudder is exactly the sort of streaming service I've always wanted. It has a huge collection covering every horror subgenre imaginable. Creature features, ghost stories, slasher movies, an extensive international library, cult classics, giallo, revenge thrillers, older classics, and modern favorites. You name it, they probably have it. There are new spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors, and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly. They also have a bunch of great exclusive films you're not going to find anywhere else. A few films I personally recommend include Monster Party, a really fun slasher film about a young couple who attend the literal party from hell. Horror Noir, a fascinating documentary about the history of black horror cinema. Mandy, starring Nicolas Cage, part revenge thriller, part psychedelic masterpiece from visionary filmmaker Panos Cosmatos. Longtime listeners may also want to check out Lizzie, a tense psychological thriller featuring killer performances by Kristen Stewart and Chloe Sevigny about the life and forbidden love of Lizzie Borden, who, you may remember, was the subject of one of my own podcast episodes. On top of all that, Shudder's irrepressible and thriving community revels in all things provocative, evocative, and dangerous. From bantering with Shudder on social media and contributing fantastic, irreverent reviews to relishing in member-only perks such as exclusive releases and VIP movie screenings. Shudder believes there is safety in numbers. Don't be left in the dark alone. With Shudder, you'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite streaming devices, including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, and Google Chromecast, among others. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for only $5.99 a month or $56.99 a year. But right now, listeners, to The Conspirators can try Shutter for free. That's right, I said free for 30 days. Go to shudder.com and use promo code TC. I'm dead serious when I say how much I love Shudder, and I bet you will too. And now, back to my show. One other theory that's sometimes been touted in the mystery of the Aline Moore Lighthouse Keepers is the possibility of murder. It's often written that Donald MacArthur was a notorious hothead And some researchers have used this suggestion to concoct a theory in which MacArthur flew off the handle and murdered Ducat and Marshall in a fit of rage. Then he presumably committed suicide rather than face the consequences of his action. The problem is, there is no evidence whatsoever to support this theory, and considering the lighthouse showed no signs of a disturbance or struggle, it makes this a little difficult to believe. The idea that living in the close quarters of a lighthouse could cause someone to have murderous thoughts, though, isn't completely far-fetched. Imagine being trapped in a small, confined space with someone you couldn't stand. Day after day, night after night, caught in close quarters with someone who set your teeth on edge and made your blood boil. That's precisely what happened during the 19th century in a tiny lighthouse off the coast of Wales. The smalls are a string of lifeless basalt rocks poking up out of the ocean. The first lighthouse built there was little more than a tiny shack raised up on oak struts with another central column added a few years later for added stability. Access was gained by a rope ladder attached to a trap door in the underside of the main room. Considering how small this tiny structure was, you had to keep the trap door closed unless someone was entering or exiting the tower because of how little room you had to actually walk around inside. The lighthouse was originally financed by an Englishman named John Phillips in 1776 and was designed and constructed by Henry Whiteside. It was Whiteside who lit the flame and tended the lighthouse for the first winter season. And it was during this first season that Whiteside became stranded by harsh weather and was forced to send out several desperate letters and bottles begging for supplies. By 1801, two men, Thomas Hall and Thomas Griffin, had been brought on to man the lighthouse. Keep in mind the Smalls Lighthouse had been cramped when it was just manned by a single individual. Now imagine adding a second person to the mix. This was made all the more difficult considering the two men in question absolutely hated each other. In many ways they were polar opposites. Griffith was a young, gruff laborer, while Hall was more refined, a craftsman who had worked for years as a cooper making barrels. The few things they had in common didn't seem to make their relationship any better. Both men hailed from the town of Pembrokeshire, and both men were married, leaving their families behind on the mainland while they spent weeks at a time manning the lighthouse. But witnesses who saw the men together at one of the local pubs on the mainland often reported them getting into loud arguments with one another, arguments so loud and nasty it's a wonder they never came to blows. But it's the well-known animosity the men had for each other that set the stage for what was to happen next. The winter of 1801 was a particularly harsh one. The terrible weather made it so that no relief keepers could be sent to the island. Heavy waves and high winds kept the supply ships at bay, leaving the men stranded with dwindling supplies of food and clean water. They tried sending for help using Henry Whiteside's method of putting letters in bottles, but no help ever came for them. The one thing the men didn't lack for was fuel for the light, so with nothing else to do to occupy their time except argue and do their jobs, the pair dutifully kept the light burning for passing ships. There are differing reports on exactly what happened next. Some stories claim that Griffith took ill after being exposed to the elements. Other stories claim he slipped and hit his head. In either case, Griffith, the younger and stronger of the pair, died suddenly, leaving Hall with an even worse problem on his hands. Not only was he running short on supplies, but now he was stranded in the North Atlantic in a tiny room with a corpse. The obvious thing to do would have been to toss the man's body into the sea, but Howell knew this was a terrible idea considering how many people on the mainland were well aware of the animosity between him and Griffiths. No doubt he'd be blamed for the man's murder should he suddenly vanish, so he had to keep the man's body around to prove it. But this too also presented another major problem. Namely, it wouldn't be long before Griffith's body began to decompose. The idea of having to share such close quarters with a rotting corpse for an extended time absolutely could not happen. So Howell, the craftsman, took apart some of the storage cabinets and repurposed them into a makeshift coffin. When he was finished, he hauled the coffin containing Griffith's body out onto the narrow gallery that encircled the lighthouse. He hoped the bitter cold would slow the rate of decomposition and keep down the smell of death. But at the same time, Hall didn't want the high winds and large waves to wash away the coffin, so he tied the box to the railings. But the sea wasn't kind, and soon after Hall moved the coffin outside, a storm set in and shattered the box to pieces, leaving only Griffith's body behind. Somehow the wind and waves had caused the corpse to get tangled in the ropes that had previously bound the coffin to the railing at the edge of the gallery, and he was stuck in there good. As the weeks wore on and more waves crashed against the gallery, nothing seemed able to dislodge the corpse. Weeks dragged on into months, and Hall had to sit there and watch as the body of his hated co-worker rotted away only a few feet from his vantage point. The long ordeal proved too much for Howell's mind, and by the time a rescue boat finally showed up four months after Griffith died, Howell had gone hopelessly mad. White-haired and emaciated, the ship's crew had to drag Holloway as he babbled incessantly about how Griffith wasn't really dead. Although this certainly sounds like the ravings of a madman, from a certain point of view, it's easy to understand. You see, during those long winter months, although Griffith's body remained securely tied to the railing, his limbs had come loose and begun flapping in the wind. Numerous ships had passed the Smalls Lighthouse during those long four months, yet none ever stopped to check in on the lighthouse keepers, because all the ship's captains reported everything seemed normal. At night they could still see the light burning, just as it always had, and one of the lighthouse keepers standing outside in the gallery waving at them as they passed by. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. Just a reminder that if you're interested in trying out Shutter Free for 30 days, you can sign up at shudder.com and use promo code TC. In other business, I have some new Patreon supporters I need to thank. Thank you to BG and Brandon for signing up, and thank you to Molly for raising her pledge to the $10 level. Just a reminder that patrons to the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes, the latest of which just came out a few days ago. It's a really fun story about a documentary that aired on British television in 1977 that ended up spawning a whole slew of conspiracy theories involving the moon landing, life on other planets, underground bunkers, and the extermination of life as we know it. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show and hearing this mini-sode and lots of others, I'll put a link to our Patreon page in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. You can find us on many of your favorite podcast apps, as well as our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, our Facebook page, or even send us a good old email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.